All right, if you are here, you are listening to an episode of Sky King's Mental Playground, Polkadot Kusama Web 3, and NFT Edition. So I've been running a podcast for a little over a year. We launched the first ever long-form podcast, NFT, with Bruno, who is episode one on this side of the world. And the entire time, it's been an experiment on the business model of media. We are launching now because I am looking for a technical co-founder. And so I'm going to be putting out all of the episodes that we have focused on around Polkadot, around Kusama, around NFTs, and around Web3 onto this channel, which is free. The other ones were behind a paywall because I do believe media should be paid for. But this is going to be an opportunity to connect, get more audience members, you know, just decrease the friction to listen. If you want to hear the other episodes, we've had some amazing guests, everybody from, you know, Professor Robin Hansen, Chris Williamson, um, a bunch of solo casts, Q&As, stuff like that. You can go to skmp.supercast.com. But, and without further ado, if you would like to build a company, one that is focused on changing the business model of media, one that leverages the power of Web3, but has a UX and experience that feels very native and easy to use. I have a vision for something I am calling Stoa, and I need your help to build it. So I'm going to drop a link right in the description. If you're interested or anybody you know who you think would be a good fit, even just to have a conversation and to learn more, you can hit that link, fill out the form, and we will be in touch Welcome to this episode of Sky King's Mental Playground. Stability. Don't take yourself too seriously. We stand Sky on Sky King's Mental Playground. The only loss Breathe. in life is not realizing potential. Build the world you want to see. Yeah. Sky King's Mental Playground. Welcome. Late last year in 2021, my house was robbed. Um, which in and of itself is not that interesting, but I think the next things that happen kind of make it a, a one of a kind story. Um, I woke up at my girlfriend's house, uh, so I had not, did not spend the night at my house. I went to work, and I started getting texts from my roommate, Stein, saying that, uh, hey, do you know where my keys are? They were there in my jacket. Can't find my jacket. I was like, I wasn't home last night. I, I, I don't know, man. Um, continue working. About 1030, I'm in a meeting, and I get another text from Stein saying, hey, I think we were robbed. All your stuff is gone. Is at that point that in my meeting, I said, hey, guys, I was just robbed. I'm going to leave and I will talk to you all tomorrow. Hung up, didn't wait for a response, went home. Get to my house, go in my room. Both my roommates are in sort of full-on alert mode. Uh, my roommate Stein had had his jacket and keys stolen along with his PS5. And, which are hard uh, to come by these days. Which are hard to come by, yeah. Uh, I, having my room on the first floor... Uh, had the worst damage. I had lost my music gear, including like a bass amp head that was very nice and some really nice pedals. You have a lot of music stuff in your room usually, yeah. Yeah. Like a fair amount. I do have a lot. Like a guitar. I have, oh, yeah. I have a really, really expensive Les Paul that thankfully was not stolen. Um, but I had a lot of other things stolen from me. Um, many things that I didn't even know I had. But we'll, I'll get to that later. Um, <laughs> anyways, the interesting part about this robbery, it was very clear we got robbed. Um, you know, and the interesting part is that both Stein and Tom, the other roommate, were both home, which is creepy. 
Um, and, you know, we're pretty easygoing people. We, we think Austin's a fairly safe city. So when people are home, we don't lock our doors. Uh, and the other interesting, I guess, fact is this happened on Halloween night. Mm-hmm. So um, we're starting to put things together. And my roommate, Tom, realizes, uh, starts bringing up the fact that he woke up in the middle of the night to use the restroom. And as he was about to use the restroom, he saw the door close and somebody go inside the restroom. And he assumed it was Stein. So he went downstairs, used that restroom. Stein then says, I never used the restroom last night. So we already realized that Tom has engaged to a certain degree with this burglar, which is extremely terrifying. Yeah. Uh, and I am feeling a sense of violation that this stranger has been through my room. It's very disconcerting. So we're sitting there. We don't know what to do. Stein's car is out front and his keys are gone. And this guy can just come take his car whenever this guy wants. So, so we're f- trying to figure out, we've got to get his car towed. Do we have to get it rekeyed? Like it, this is, a, and I'm in the midst of planning a music festival in which I will be using my gear to supply the musicians. And I'm like, I just lost like $2,000 of gear. Like what, what are we supposed to do? All while this is happening, Stein has, as what most people would do, post on next door. Hey, my house got robbed. This is where it gets interesting. Within two minutes of him posting that, we get a message. Hey, our house was robbed too. We also live on Garden Street. And we have the guy's phone. It's at this point where me and Stein get into go mode. And he says, let's wait, meet wait, is up. this the couple that we talked to at the Credmark? Yes. Oh, okay. Couple. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. So we get in our car, go literally down the street like a couple blocks to meet this this woman and uh, her her uh partner who had both been robbed she's like yeah they the guy raided our cars we have him on camera hopping the fence and hopping back at some point when he hopped back he dropped his phone which we found uh we we were able to get an address from this phone and um so at that point when when we had met up with her we were about to go to this other address which is also just down the street, all within like a 10 block radius. So we're well, going to call the cops. You guys were just going to go yourself. We call the, Oh, here's the thing about Austin right now. It's like, if unless the crime is in progress, the cops are not going to help you. Really? There's like, they're like, yeah, file a police report. We'll get to it when we get to it. So we're like, all right, screw it. We're just going to take this address and go figure this out ourselves. So it's me, my roommate Stein, this like this, you know, young blonde woman and her dog uh, are walking to this guy's house. On the way to the house, the dog just starts puking, which I think is an interesting omen. For sure. <laughs> She's just like, oh, yeah, don't worry about it. It's fine. Like, okay. We get to this house. Uh, we go around back, and we, we see this, this uh, older Hispanic man come out, and we confront him. We're like, hey, we found a phone that was dropped by a guy who robbed this woman. Um, and we were able to get this address through messaging someone on the phone who was talking to us, which was, it turns out it was a, uh, a rehab facility that was admitting the person who owned the phone. Mm. They were, they were trying to follow up with him. This guy starts kind of seizing up to me. Like, I, I don't know who that is. It's not Wait, so phone. this dude who stole the thing didn't have a lock on his phone. Um, he did, but he, they were able to message. I don't quite you can know still call. Part. I think you can call. Someone I think back. they were able to call the person who texted the phone back yeah, yeah. or something. I wasn't there for this part, but they were able to get an address. And this man was at this address. And he's like, I don't know who this person is. Like, I need to go. And like, very kind of sketched out. And my roommate Stein has the brilliant idea of saying, hey, I want you to put this number in your phone, your contact. He puts the number in and immediately uh, Ian, James, Ian James, I can't remember the last name, pops up, which is the guy who, had, who owned this phone. Yeah. So it was like, okay, you know this guy. 
at this point, this guy is like not stoked. He knows where we, he knows that we know where he lives, the name of the person who robbed this girl's house. Um, and like, so he knows this is not good. He gives, he takes my number down and he says, I'll call you and then drives off. So at this point, we're still like, well, shit, what do we do? You know, um, we don't even know if the person who robbed our house, the same as the person who robs, robbed uh, Amanda's house, this woman that we met up with. We go back home. We're sitting on the couch. And an hour later, we get a call from Gavino, who's this older gentleman. He says, hey, I want to meet up. I have your stuff. We're like, what? He's like, yeah. And so we agree to meet in this parking lot by my house. We invite the other couple back. We meet Gavino. And he has a MacBook, which was Amanda's MacBook. And I was like, well, that's great, but <laughs> we don't have any of our stuff. He's like, all right, all right, all right, fine. Like, well, let's, let's go meet James. You drive a hard bargain. <laughs> he, admits, he admits that he knows who James is. James is the son of, a, uh, of this other guy who he's like a, who uh, Gavino owns a house that this guy lives out of. And he considers James to be like a nephew type figure or whatever. We go to this other house, filthy house, disgusting house. No one is there. And he's like, oh, James has run off. And we're like, well, this is not okay. Like, we're still missing stuff. Like, what, what, what the hell, man? He's like, all right, you know, I haven't been totally honest. Uh, I actually own the home that James lives in. So I'll take you there. I'll let you in. We'll see if your stuff is there. Um, so he takes us to this house, this shack of a house in the middle of East Austin, just like beautiful new houses and this like old gross shack right there. It's not the one that's like right across from, uh, from on, on Cesar Chavez by uh, across from Eastside Tavern, is it? There's like that crazy uh, shack. No, it's a little oh, okay, further okay. down from Cesar. It's all, it's on uh, it's on Canterbury Street. Okay, okay. Um, and this house is also directly behind the other couple that got robbed. So we get to this house. There's a guy sitting on the front porch, figuring a bush light. Not James, his his like other roommate. I don't they don't know each other, but this other guy's like, what the hell is going on? Are these people going to my house? So and then Gavino. Combs up the door, unlocks, opens it, and sitting there in the living room is my bike. And at that point, we're like, we have found all of our stuff. We go into his, this guy's room, James, and we find all of our stuff. We find Xboxes. We find probably 20 different phones he's stolen. Turns out that this guy has been robbing the other couple for multiple months because uh, the, the other guy, Brown Haney, who, was, uh, who also got robbed, was like, hey, I've been looking for this thing for like two months. Uh, we find. Stein's jacket, his car keys, my Xbox. Uh, we don't find my music gear. And as a result, Gavino says, hey, I will write you a check for the stuff you didn't find. I just don't want him to go to jail. Just please don't tell the cops about this. And so we negotiate a buyout, essentially. He gives us cash to pay for the stuff we lost. Um, and uh, that's that. Although it turns out that the other couple, the husband, Brown, runs a crypto DAO called ATX DAO. And I ended up seeing him at that same party we, uh, we were at at East, East Side Tavern. So it was, and we've been friends with that couple now since then. Um, and yeah, I, I think it might be the only case of someone getting robbed and then actually vigilante style tracking down the robber, finding their stuff and taking it back. Um, all in kind of like six hours. What is... So and you haven't talked to James, obviously, since all of this stuff went down. Like, what was he thinking? Like, a lot of that stuff seems like really trackable and hard to move. Uh, he's a he's like eighteen. Okay, and apparently he has a habit of like the guy who lived with him is like, yeah, this dude just shows up with random stuff every day, and we know he's robbing it or stealing it, and we're just like, this, this guy's just 
not a good person. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know. I've never met the guy. I don't really want to meet him. I don't really know what I would do if I did meet him. It was a pretty violating like thing. Who uh, uses the bathroom during an act of robbery? <laughs> to hide, I guess. Oh, okay, okay. He heard stuff going in. He I heard was like, Tom coming out. I was like, yeah. I got to get in this bathroom. Yeah, I was like, who the fuck is using a bathroom? Like, oh, I'm going to like just take a casual dump real quick. Yeah. Dude, it, it is sad when you have, especially youth who have been, you know, messed up in different ways. I was talking about my cousin earlier. He yeah. got in trouble for he his first robbery. He did, he broke into a library and like, you know, the library probably had like 50 bucks on it yeah. and that's what he stole and obviously got caught by the police and it was just like, dude, you're not being really smart here. There's some bad criminals out here. Uh, not that any criminal is good, but uh, all right. Good story. Welcome to the show, Mo. Do you mind Thanks. giving us a little intro who you are outside of a vigilante? <laughs> yeah. My name is Mo and Ahmad. Uh, people call me Mo. I've been in Austin for 10 years. Uh, I've done a number of things. I was in the music industry for a long time. And then recently I've transitioned to crypto. I uh, founded and continue to run a uh, risk analytics and data modeling platform on the Ethereum network. And then outside of that, I uh, I actually run a production group called Mo & Co. And we are the folks behind MoFest, which is a, a festival that I throw on my family's property. Um, and I, not along with a number of other events that we're going to do. And then uh, I'm in a few bands around town as well. Uh, most notably, Texas String Assembly. Single coming in April. Get ready. <laughs> Sick. And MoFest is in April too, yeah? And MoFest is also in April, yeah. And then South By is coming up. Uh, and so there's all... The next few months are uh, pretty pretty bonkers. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, that's that's me in a nutshell. Awesome, man. Super stoked to have you. Uh, wanted to kick it off with, you know, a lot of people talk about the similarities, especially historically, of musicians and math. Since your combo is musician and software development, how do you feel? Like, do you see an overlap there? Do you feel like it helped you learn software development being a musician? Um. I think the act of making music, I don't know if I could draw a correlation between that and program, but I think using like music software, understanding uh, how, how software works or like when I was a sound engineer, like understanding signal flow and identifying where the problem is happening. Like, oh, this mic is plugged in, but I'm not getting sound. Like, how do I diagnose that? I think that thought process translates to programming pretty well. Like, you know, being given like this scary problem like to the average person like i plug this thing in it's not making sound what do i do or like i getting an error in my program and I, I don't know what to do and being able to like think about it critically and like calm down and like identify and you know diagnose the situation those things have translated translated pretty well i think working with people um has, has translated but like musicians and programmers are generally not the same kind of people mm -hmm. um and I think there's just an uh, element of creativity that maybe helps with programming, trying to just come up with inventive solutions. Um, and I think the other part is understanding that the the cool thing about making music is not the end result, it's the process. Mm. And like understanding that when you enjoy the process that you don't have to worry about what the result will be. It'll, it'll be satisfying if you really enjoy the process and coding is the same way. Um, you know, if you enjoy the process of building a program and then having it work and feeling that pride, it's the same as making music. Like you, you, it's, it's this job where you get to 
put your brain to it, figure some stuff out. At the end, you have a thing you can show people. And I think that's really valuable. Mm. And I think that's where art and programming come in, come in, kind of in, in uh, come, come together is that you can show somebody this thing, like, hey, I, I made this thing. It does this thing. Isn't that cool? Yeah. Yeah. I've been, uh, dude, my friend just interviewed Jordan Peterson like three weeks ago and he had this like huge thing in San Antonio and he had flew in from the UK, did all of this stuff to make it happen. And they go to set everything up and they turned out they had had like very, very long cables off their Zoom. And when they go to sit down to do the interview, all of a sudden there's a radio signal being picked up and they're freaking the fuck out. Like, how is this possibly happening? And I guess like the wires from the Zoom were so long that it was actually acting as some sort of antenna. Wow. Like, can you believe that? Like, has that ever happened with music or anything with you? Um... Yeah, like I've, I've remembered, like if you have an amp, it'll pick up like a local signal. It's like a yoga studio, really or something weird. It was some weird radio station. Yeah, it happens occasionally. Yeah, that's freaking bonkers, man. I can't believe that. Uh, when one thing that I kind of want to touch on that you just said is there is, I think, the process of art, and I've been like thinking a lot of, about the difference between art and propaganda. And in my mind, there, I'm not going to go into like the lengthy bit of it, but like in my mind, like. Art is happening when you're at the edge of what is possible for you as an individual or what is possible for the culture. And I think in order to be there, you have to be enjoying what's going on. Yeah, definitely. That's really, that's really, I just like, I'm trying to tackle that more and more. How do you think about propaganda or do you think about propaganda at all? Um, I definitely consume it. I'm on Twitter a lot. Yeah. Um, I think that this current state of affairs, you have to assume that everything you consume is propaganda and like question it and just sort of be careful not to accept things at face value. Mm-hmm. Um, and I try to apply that, you know, every day, I guess. Uh, so, you know, I, one interesting example is this whole Ukraine and it's, it's not as like a bad thing. Like the Ukraine situation, there's like these, these, these stories being concocted, like mm-hmm. the, the ghost of Kiev. Yeah, the Ukrainian Reaper, the Snake Island Thirteen, um, which these like stories of heroics and bravery and whatnot to like inspire the Ukrainian army or the Ukrainian people about like these, you know, people who are like whatever shooting down planes left and right or like killing a bunch of Russians or like I don't know being bold and brave and sacrificing their lives. Where it turns out all three of those things have a level of fallacy to them. But they're useful in the moment because, like, this country is under siege, and it's like, I think those things are inspiring. Mm-hmm. So, like, that's an example I think of of propaganda that I would choose to believe, even if it's not necessarily true, because I think it 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 serves a good purpose. If you're like on the side of Ukraine, which I assume most people are, even yeah. Russians apparently. Yeah. Um, but then there's like bad propaganda, which I don't have to get into that. We've seen plenty of that over the last you know four to five years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting how it can be useful. Let's go back to, let's say, like 2018. So you were in music. What was the thing that made you decide to go do the coding boot camp to get into software development to go that route? Was there like a breaking point or like what was, uh, the, what was the thing? Yeah, it, there was. I was on tour with uh, a guy named Sun Little, who's one of my favorite artists and still one of my, my good friends. And uh, the first tour I went with him, I like, I busted my ass, man. I was like on the ball as a tour manager and sound engineer, like doing things ahead of time, super on the accounting numbers, like over-prepared. 
And at the end of that tour, the the management, it was a very reputable management firm. I can't remember what they're called, but they, they managed like Lauve and Dayglow and a bunch of like Dr. Dog, like a bunch of huge artists. And they were like, oh, great job, moment. Like, we're super stoked to have you on board. I was like, fuck yeah, like I killed it. Um, between that and the next big tour, there was some shows that went, that happened where I like, some were on the ball, some weren't, and management didn't seem to care. And I was just like, how, how close of attention are they paying to me? Like, how well, how like valuable am I actually? Is my like, how valuable is my like, uh, me put like me working as hard as possible? What is that? Is there that, are they noticing that? Is that, is that being recognized? Um, cause I was already realizing that the skills I need for this job, I, I'm not to sound like a, arrogant, but I was like, I'm smarter than this. Like, mm-hmm. this shit's not that hard. Like, I, I, I have other interests. Like, I know I can do more than this, but like, Maybe my my hard work's being recognized. So the second tour, I actually purposely didn't do shit, didn't prove for anything, didn't contract anything, just kind of winged it. And uh, at the end of the tour, the manager actually calls me. He's like, "Hey, I just want to say you did such a good job this past tour." <laughs> uh, okay, there's like, if you're a musician in the music industry, and then this this is where, like, I know there's people who work in the industry, and they have useful jobs, but I'm just like all about the artists the rest of it doesn't matter mm. it, it's like same with sports it's like if you have the best player on the team it doesn't matter if the coach is good or the gm is good like it really doesn't if the best view of michael jordan doesn't fucking matter you're gonna yeah. win mm-hmm. if you're a, a musician and you're you write kick-ass songs and you perform really well it doesn't matter who your tour manager it none of that shit matters mm. it's, and, and i don't like not having that amount of control and i i had always felt like Computers and software is eating the world. I don't want to get eaten. I want to be the one eating people. Yeah. So I made it a point. I was like, I need to understand how computers and software and machines work. I'm like, I, I knew that was always something I wanted to learn. And then I met somebody in a band who is actually my co-founder now, who was both creative. And so one draw, one like sort of reservation I had was like, oh, well, coders and programmers are all like weird introverted nerds. Mm-hmm. And I met this guy in a band, my, my co-founder, Neil, who was the most extroverted creative person I've ever met and also a like world-class coder. Mm. And he showed me how when you have both of those things, the possibilities are truly endless. You have the creativity to come up with ideas and solve problems and the skills to actually execute on those. And I was like, I want to be that. And he had just told me about this new venture he was doing that involved crypto. And he was like, hey, um, I was like, I want to be part of it. He's like, okay, well, figure out how to write a smart contract that does something and get back to me. And so I went to this coding boot camp. I learned all this unnecessary bullshit, but learned how to code, learned how to use the term, learned all the important skills, figured out how to write a smart contract, showed it to him. And he was like, all right, we go to Hong Kong like next week. And that's kind of how my crypto at the end of 2018, my crypto journey started. No way, dude. So you just like straight up, that was your like, okay, I need to learn this to get this done. And then he was basically like, let's go to fucking Hong Kong. Yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. And then it was a whole year of me living in Hong Kong, Bangkok, Tokyo, LA, New York, just like literally faking it like I, I had to like bootstrap programming skills as well as like financial and like economic understanding of things like understand what a loan like really what a loan is how do you program that how do you make it permissionless how does like gas fees on ethereum work and how does that play into like your investment thesis and like all like so much stuff um and i've only now in 2022 gotten to a point i was just in east denver where i feel like i can have conversations with people and like i'm not faking it. like i know what the fuck i'm talking about now. yeah but it took it took three years for me to get there 
Holy shit. Okay, so let's step back just a tad. If you were going to, if somebody's listening to this and they're interested in going down the path, you know, you said you went through this whole boot camp, a lot of bullshit. If you had to meat and potatoes to like the right language to learn to be able to write a smart contract like as fast as possible, what would be that like? What course would you create for somebody? <sighs> Man, the language is really irrelevant. Okay. Um, it's like if you're trying to do data science, you're going to use Python. If you're trying to build like enterprise software, you're going to use Java. If you're trying to build like a web application, you're going to use JavaScript. They all, the logic is the same. Mm-hmm. It's the logic part that I think is, is what you need to learn. But the first skills I would say actually is like if you ever open a Mac and you go to the Mac terminal, mm-hmm. like try to do everything you can do with a clicker and like a mouse and your keyboard, do it on the terminal. Mm-hmm. And if you can do that and like, Learn how to like open programs, kill programs, like really figure everything out about your computer just in the terminal. Um, that would be like the single best place to start. And then I would say, like, try to build a t- be like I want. I would love to have a tool that does this, mm-hmm. like a simple tool. Like for me, it was the blockchain works by blocks, but human beings work in time. Mm-hmm. The blockchain doesn't have time. So I need a way to convert, like, I want to know something about this time, but on the blockchain, I have to convert that time to a block number. How do I build that? How do I build a tool that just does that for me? And that was like the first program that I built. It's really not that hard. Most of this stuff's just on the internet. You just find code, you copy and paste it. And once you know how to use the terminal, you can try things out. That's the part that's always hard is like, you can write code out, but then how do you test it Mm. in a really quick, fast way? You don't want to build a whole front end. You just like go to your terminal and try it out. Oh, it didn't work. And it's, it's, it's really simple. So I I don't know if that answers your question, but like, I I would say those are the most valuable skills I learned in that bootcamp. Yeah. No, I like that a lot. Do you, how do you think, so one thing that I think people as humans, probably we just don't conceptualize very well. And it's a lot of the fundamentals of what you guys are doing or have tried to do it at Cred, Credmark. And I say tried to do just because like, this is where you're starting and then going into is how you think about risk. And I was talking to this poker player yesterday who is a professional poker player. He uh, was, had, was talking through this kind of private uh, poker tournament he was in that he was, I think, in the semifinals. If he would have gone another round over, he was in the money, minimum of a million dollars. Wow. Walk away at that point was $10 million at the top. And he had a hand where he was, he had done the math and he had an 80% chance of winning. And he goes all in and loses. It was, uh, he had like a pair of queens. The next person on the table had two tens. Ten came up. And I was just, I was shocked because in my mind, the rule of any game is don't get out of the game. Yeah, And so I was just asking him, like, how does he analyze risk? How does he think through that? How do you think about risk? Well, I would say... I actually just watched a movie called uh, Card Counter about mm. this, where it depends on whose money that... Like, I, I assume there's a buy-in fee for that tournament. Yeah. If, if he is the one that put that money up, mm-hmm. then he absolutely made the right call. Yeah. It's your money. You ass- you assess your own risk. Do whatever you want. And crypto operates that way. If you're putting your own money in, like I'm not going to be able to help you. Like, yeah. You know what you you know what you know. You're going to do what you want and you don't have to answer anybody else. So like good luck. Mm-hmm. But in that movie Card Counter, what turns out is that these really good players were like sponsored. Mm-hmm. And as a result, they adjusted their risk proportionally to where it's like he if he had if someone had sponsored him for that tournament, 
he would not have gone all in. Yeah. He'd be like, I need it. He's going for like whatever the lowest placing he can get to win money. That's what his goal is. And you cannot achieve that goal by going all in on like pocket aces or whatever. Like, who yeah. knows what's going to happen the rest of the night. So I would say I, what I do is like, and what we try to do at Credmark is we assume that there are going to be institutions and firms and, and DAOs that they're trying to invest money that is not theirs. And that is where the risk part comes in because you can't just, you're, you're, you're talking about multiple different parties' expectations. And you don't want to be responsible for losing someone's money. So when you make a decision about that with, with other people's money, you want to have as much data as possible. That's where we come in, right? Um, so I would say, how do we assess risk? What we do is we say, who is, whose risk profile are we serving? Is it one person? Then we probably aren't that useful. Is it a bunch of people who are deploying money for a bunch of other people? That's where it gets messy. And that's where you really have to have like super tight high integrity data and like expertise to evaluate the correct decisions. Okay. It, it is a really, really interesting game. And especially when you start to think about statistics and like the inability to understand statistics, I've, you know, my, my statistical understanding is pretty limited. I did was an econ major, did a bunch of econometrics classes. So understood it a little bit and I'm pretty good at like multivariate regressions, but I don't know, dude, it's just, I think we have like this inability to conce- conceptualize the whole possibility of outcomes. Don't really know where I'm going with that, but it's something I've been thinking about a lot, especially when it feels like the world we're stepping into is not only in crypto, but just in general, this 2020 onward is a way more volatile world. I know a lot of that's driven by the media landscape. I mean, there's this, there's a really funny uh, Duncan Trussell quote. He has a bit where he's basically like, there's a guy sitting by a waterfall he has no fucking clue how angry he should be about what's going on in the world right now. And like, that's super funny, right? Cause like you can get out of it a bit, but it does feel like we are going into a world of increasing volatility. How do you, like, how have you guys thought about that with Credmark being in a hyper volatile world of crypto? Uh, yeah. I mean, it just, so it's, it's what you're describing is something called tail risk. Mm-hmm. So like tail risk is like, if you look at a bell curve and to your perspective, the right is like good, really, really, really good things happening. And the left is, the tail is really bad things happening. Crypto and the world we seem to be going towards has more tail risk. So what that means is when you build a model that's supposed to, is supposed to calculate the worst case scenario for a portfolio, you got to jack up that low end risk way more than what you would do in traditional finance or like the old world, right? So I think it's just uh, adjusting your mindset to be like, what is the worst thing that can happen? Multiply that by 10. And then assume that's going to happen four times a year if I had to like quantify it or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's a simple, it's, it's simple. It's just that you got to be honest about um, the risk that exists. And one issue with traditional finance is if you look at a lot of the models they use, they, the models assume that the worst case scenario would happen once every hundred years. But in reality, that's, it literally has happened like 20 times. So like traditional finance models, will not give you a reliable answer. So we have this new opportunity with this new financial system to establish new primitives that actually truly encapsulate that risk. Mm. And it's scary. And I think when you see the numbers, you're like, damn, that's really, that's a lot. That can lose a lot. And so as long as people are aware of that and sort of the increasing volatility, I think if smart people have that data, I think we'll make smart decisions. One thing that is cool about 
the blockchain is just because since it is, or a lot of it is on a public ledger, the access to data is much larger. See, that's where we come in, and yeah. we would say that's not true. Okay. If you look at if you look at raw blockchain data, it's a bunch of hexadecimal stuff. Yeah. No human being on Earth can tra- can read it. Okay. There needs to you have to translate it from hexadecimal data to some sort of programmable human readable language, like a SQL database or some sort of database that you can actually write code to then retrieve the data. And that translation process has to be done by humans. So mm. That's where the error comes in, right? That's why data. That's why understanding and consuming and processing data from the blockchain is not as easy as it sounds because you have to rely on a human being to translate it for you before you can actually consume it. That's why what we're doing at Credmark, the way we translate it is open source. So we are, you can audit how we do it and we can either prove to you that we're doing it right or you can show us how we're doing it wrong. We can fix it. So the, trans, the, the, the human translation part is... You're right. The, at its core, it is public. And if we get the translation part right, then yeah, that's an immutable source of data to, to prove to anybody, like, yes, this is what happened. But that translation part is still tough to do. And when you do it, you need to make sure you do it in a completely transparent way so uh, you can be audited or you can, you can back up what you're saying. And so what you and you guys are doing this community driven, right? So you you do it. You have a team of people that do it, but you also offer rewards to people who will go out and do it as well. Yeah, at the high level, yeah, definitely. Okay. okay. What? Just step back on Credmark a bit. What drew you, other than Neil helping you, like push you that direction? What drew you to come work with him to come work to help build Credmark? Um. Because like financial risk modeling is like very different than music. Like if you're gonna like just yeah. I think it's just I I loved finance and I love I think money and like the markets are a really interesting way to understand human behavior. Like I I say I love money not because I want a bunch of money to spend on stuff. I'm I've had enough experiences to know that that's a really bad way to live your life. But money is the way we do things, right? Regardless of how much you want or how much you have, it's like understanding it gives you an understanding of human behavior. Um, it helps understand like people's intentions and it helps you like quantify that human beings are completely irrational. Right. And I think trying to build models that sort of encapsulate all that's really interesting. But secondly, the crypto part of it is like in traditional finance, they've made it such that they think that they've made you, they've convinced you that like investment banking and the things they do are this like crazy complicated thing that only they can do. Like it's like it's like they're, they're like oh like investment banking or like investing in general or finance is like being a doctor and that's not true at all. It is not. It's hard. There are some hard concepts, but like the people who actually do it are not that much smarter than you or I. And in crypto, there's this there's this like energy of like they know that, and so when you come to crypto and asking the same questions, people are there to be like, okay, it's like this. Like, let me explain it to you in a way that you understand. Like. Um, I don't care that you don't have a finance degree. I don't care that you picked this up last week. I'm going to talk to you the same way I would talk to somebody with a PhD in economics. Like you can, I could, I can talk to hundreds of little experts in economics or finance in crypto, and they will give me all their time to explain this to me. So there's this energy, this community that is like all about empowering and educating people. And so it's way, that's why I've been able to go from knowing nothing to being pretty well-respected amongst my peers as far as like understanding how these, these markets work and how these products work because this community is all about empowering anybody to learn it as long as, you're, as, long as you have the want to. Um, 
So I, that, that's probably at a, at a large level what drew me to crypto in general. And then Credmark is just like, maybe now I could go and join another company if I wanted to, but like Credmark gave me the chance. So I'm going to see it through to the end. Yeah. Know? That's fucking sick. Do you guys do anything with, because I know, so like there's this Yale study that came out in 2017 after all of like the 26, 2017 ICOs and they found that like the highest correlation that they could find across the internet with pricing on a crypto asset was how many things were tweeted about it. Do you guys have any sort of social concept included in your modeling? We have, we, we work with some partners who monitor that, but like we are focused on on-chain data exclusively. Okay. Have you started looking at prediction markets at all? Um, that's so we've quantified our models as first order, second order, third order, and fourth order. Mm-hmm. First order is like how many times have my address sent stuff to your address and vice versa. Very simple model. Mm-hmm. Second order is how many times have I interacted with this DeFi protocol? Um, and what's my like behavior with that protocol? That's second order. Third order is, um, third order is like a statistical, like a total value locked or something, but could be a statistical, like this, this protocol has this much assets under management and it has fluctuated X amount over the last, you know, Y days. Fourth order is like, based on the history of this assets movement, we can say with X amount of confidence that it's going to do this in the future. Um, but when by predictive markets, you're saying like, who's going to be president? Yeah. Okay. So I, that that's the so when I hear predictive, I think like a machine learning model that has that has crunched enough numbers from the past to give you an idea of the future. You mean predictive like um, betting on future events? Exactly. Yeah. I actually don't know much about that. Okay. I actually had the same problem where somebody asked me that question on the plane. Who's mm-hmm. like an Ethereum core developer, and I gave him the finance answer. He's like, No, you can. This can apply to anything, to everything, not just finance. Like there's a whole world of op- of possibilities. So I'm curious to hear from you what you think about that. Yeah. So we're I'm I'm meeting with some people. So I was at this Slate Star Codex meetup yesterday, and he's big on prediction markets. But that's one of the things that I want to build into Stoa is a prediction market on content. And so I'm in the process of meeting with a lot of teams that are building on-chain prediction markets, and they're thinking about it from from a governance standpoint, I don't mean just governance about how to like govern a community and in, in like a crypto governance, but like how it then impacts real world. Like if this is how we decide laws that happen, like people actually have to wager bets. You have this, you have two things going on. People are guessing what the future is going to be, but they're doing it in a way that they have skin in the game. They've actually put money to it and that leading to a more real answer. So it's like voting plus money. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. And then that being more likely to have real outcomes. You know, if you go back to 2016, the election, like, other than podcasts, the only other people that had Trump winning were like bookies, which was like fascinating. Yeah. Because they saw where people were placing their money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's just like kind of a more core incentive. So I was curious about that for you. Um, yeah, man, it's it's such a wild place. One thing, is this possible? This is an idea I've been playing around with a lot to the first order, for first order you're talking about. I would love on Stoa for us to be able to show with like a very simple little like flag, if the wallet who is betting or interacting with the podcast, if they have ever received a certain amount of money from a wallet associated with the CCP, the US government, the Kremlin. Uh, What network are you all going to be on? So we're most likely going to be on Akala, which will be done on a, but it will have like a EBM. So it'll be, like be able to be written and connect to. So that that comes Ethereum. 
that's a, a wallet tagging mm-hmm. thing, which is uh, there's a company called Nansen that does that really well. Um, so I could say that we could do that, but they could probably do it better. Mm-hmm. But they also cost like way more money. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, so we, we try not to delve into anything that 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 jumps into the real world, right? Mm-hmm. So to speak, right? yeah. Until like, unless there's a point to where like a wallet that has a certain balance needs to KYC itself to, for some reason, like we're not gonna have we're we're, gonna, we're not we're not gonna be of the mind of like we'll tell you like, hey, this address that is interacting with your podcast NFT received money from this other address that has like. billions of dollars in its wallet, you might want to look into that. But I'm not going to go figure... We're Credmark's not going to go figure out whose wallet that is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's not what we're best at. Mm -hmm. So we can tell you like, oh yeah, that address that sent money to this address, they've been on this chain and that chain. Oh, they use Tornado Swap, which is... Or yeah, Tornadoes, which is like that mixer. Are you you familiar with Tornado Swap? No, uh uh-uh. Basically, it's like what criminals use. <laughs> Once they steal money, they put it in this tornado thing. It mixes it up and you can't trace it anymore. Mm. So, yeah. I mean, there's there's some things we could do, but it's all about on-chain stuff. Like, yeah. I, I wouldn't be able to tell you. Credmark wouldn't wouldn't be able to tell you. I mean, wouldn't put, we wouldn't invest time to tell you, like, oh, this is China or this yep. is Russia or whatever. Yeah. Bro, there are some very interesting marketing possibilities, though, with what you're just describing. It's like, cool, I want to launch a project. And I want to only target whales. And can I go to you guys and be like... Can you send me the addresses of people who have, you know, a thousand ETH or more? Yeah, I mean, that you can do already. What we can do is do that historically. So, like, okay, this address has had a thousand ETH, but they've had it for, like, since the inception. So, like, maybe it's Vitalik, right? You know, something like that. Yeah. Um, the histori- using historical data to, to come up with insights is kind of what we're trying to sort of uh, uh, rest our, our laurels on is, like, that's the hard part in crypto is being able to get historical understanding of data. And when you can apply that in a programmatic way, you get some really powerful stuff. Have there been any moments when you're doing this where you just had kind of like an earth shattering moment where you're just like, holy fuck, that's wild. Yeah, all the time. Yeah. <laughs> um, a lot of it has to do with uh, recently it was like about how we get historical data, the way we do it was a real, I was like, wow. I'm not going to get into it right now, but uh, when it was explained to me, I was like, okay, I, I, I get this. Um, it, it comes with like understanding how things that we consider trivial as far as data is concerned. Like how much money did you have in 2016? I think that's a pretty easy thing to figure out. Mm-hmm. It's not in crypto. Like to get the historical balance of a wallet is really hard. Um, so when you understand that the trivial things are really hard to do, and then you come up with solutions to those things, you begin to like, you, you just get surprised every day. Dude, uh, I don't, we might have to delete this part, but I'm just going to go for it. Uh, I was talking with Tom the other day and he was talking about how one of his coworkers was the dude who helped like take down Dread Pirate Roberts, like by going back through his data and stuff. Have you guys pursued any, any of like FBI people to come work for you? No, I mean, there's companies called Neutrino and Chainalysis that that are in that like uh, anti money laundering or like the crime world. Yeah, we are just like trying to give dudes with a bunch of money data they need to make smart investments, make more money. Yeah, for sure. So, I think a lot of people, and I, I this is fucked up. I've been saying this more and more. I feel like there's a lot of NPCs in the world, and what I mean by that is. 
There's a lot of people who don't have the desire or lack the initiative to create something. And you seem to be addicted to creating things that take a lot of work. What, what do you think is that drive for you? Uh, that's a good question. I don't know, man. I mean, since I was in like middle school, I would just daydream about being on stage. And like, I think it's like, I want, I want to chase this moment, this, this thing in my head and okay. A moment. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I, I want to, I have this vision in my head. How do I make it real? Oh, well, you probably got to make something. Like nobody makes it to that moment that I have in my head without making something. Yeah. You can't just ride someone's coattails to that. You got to do it yourself. Yeah. And then once you figure that out, you start making the thing. And then if you realize once you're in the, in the process of getting to that point that you really enjoy the process, well, then you're unstoppable. Um, so I, that's the simple answer, I would say. Just, you, I just it inherently just like, you know, you, vis- you have a fantasy of hitting the game-winning shot or playing a sold-out concert or, you know, giving a... Like being interviewed by somebody and like them asking you cool questions. Like this has been something I've thought about for a long time, you know. Uh, and the only reason you're talking to me is because I had made some stuff. For, I mean, for being honest, yeah, right? For sure. So I think it's just a, it's like a thing you have to do to get to the the, the experience that you want. Mm. Yeah. No, I, I feel that a lot. I and it's weird because I don't know if it's necessarily a zero sum game, but I do wonder. I talk a lot about advertising. And in my mind, advertising has led to a lot of bullshit products being made that probably should have just died. Um, but they can like ride on the backs of advertising. Like just even a weird example could be like Red Bull, which has done, I think, a lot of good for esports and for sports in general. Cool stuff, but they're nothing more than a marketing wing who just do a bunch of fuck ton of advertising. Right. They don't even make their own product. Like it's outsourced. Red Bull is? Yeah, fully, dude. I didn't yeah. know that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's strictly a marketing wing. That's all all Red Bull is actually as a company. Um and I just it 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 makes me wonder, do we want a world where every, you know, every person is building something? And we kind of see that a lot in crypto where like anybody with an idea is building something. A lot of builders, not a lot of users. Yeah, and this is all trash. Like, a lot of trash. I mean, I think there's enough things to build in different sectors that I am building and creating in one sector, but I consume in another sector. Like, I'm not going to spend time, like, cooking, like, innovating the cooking world. I'm just going to eat people's food, right? So I think if, if enough people are creating in different in different spheres and there's enough people doing it, well... They're spending all their time creating that one thing. They have to consume the other things, right? Mm -hmm. So I think as long as you diversify what people are working on, which I think as a a race, a human race, we've done that, right? There's enough people cooking things so that other people can eat them and enough people making music so those people cooking and listen to music while they cook, like right? So like my mind, yeah, everyone can create. They just can't create the same thing. (laughs) Um, I don't know if that's a good answer or not. No, it's all good. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, and it does seem like there at least is a is a, I think there's at least I feel like we should have like a billion people desiring to create, and then six billion people can consume. That could be a balance. <laughs> I but what, what I mean is consuming just something everyone one person could just consume the entire day, <laughs> dude. Yes, that's what I think. I, I have this kind of working theory. That's where actually majority of people are doing is they're just consuming all day. 
And that's where like the it NPC right. comes comes in, comes in. I think it'd be a better world though if instead of just consuming, they were creating something. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, interesting. So let's talk about a little bit about how you. This is like a selfish question, but something we've talked a little bit about. But when you were going through Asia, like what were you doing? Were you trying to raise money then, or what was the? Yeah, so we were in an incubator called okay. uh, Zerion. Not Zerion, Zeroth. Zeroth at AI. Um, even though we were not we're not an AI company, but um, yeah, we were just in Hong Kong. That's where the, that's where the incubator was based, and we we went through their program. We pitched to investors who were like friendly with the incubator and yeah, it was just, we did the same thing in, ba- in Bangkok. We were trying to hire like developers there, which that didn't really go anywhere at all, but whatever. And then, so yeah, Tokyo and Hong Kong were like pitch, pitch opportunities. Mm. Same with LA. We went there to try to raise money in New York. We were also in another incubator. So um, yeah, we were just sort of chasing the dollar at that point. Yeah. What did you guys learn from an incubator? Is it something that you'd recommend other people do or is it kind of like, fuck, wish we would have just skipped that phase? I mean, as, a, as someone who had never started a company in his life, I learned a lot. Um, would I want to go back knowing what I know now to that first incubator? No. Would I go back to that second one? Yeah. That second one was a lot more like hands-on. It was in New York. They just, they're a bigger fund. They were more into blockchain and crypto. So like, um, I think it's like anything. You got to make sure it's a good fit. Like don't be a crypto company in a food incubator. That doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Right. Did you, so being in the AI incubator was probably a bit off. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to say that because it's like crypto goes so fast. Like they might have been by the time, like if we went to that incubator in end of 2019 instead of the New York one, maybe they would have been farther along where it's like, it's tough to say. Yeah. Um, but I do know that that incubator did not really fare too well that first one. The second one is still going strong. D-Lab, they're, they're great. And they still, we have calls with them every week to this day. So... Um, so yeah, I think, I think an incubator that will stick with you to the end is also really important because mm-hmm. like really invested and they really are. Yeah. Did you, so you would have been in Hong Kong 2018, 2019. So probably during a lot of the riots that were going on just before, just before feel pretty good to have missed that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, it'd be cool to experience that to some degree, but also I'm fine not being there experiencing that. Yeah, I was I was in Hong Kong as well in 2018, not for an extended period of time, just for fun. Uh, but I remember being, after watching all of that go down, it was like a really interesting thing to see it play out and to think like, holy shit, like it's very much, I think there's these moments that make you realize how linear time is. Uh, often death is one of them, but like that happening. And then I've gone pretty deep into Hong Kong and what's happened after on this podcast it's bonkers like it's just fully gone now like fully under chinese law yeah and that has been really fascinating yeah um i i think it would look nothing like what i saw when i was there mm-hmm. it was a really cool city when i was there i mean felt like being in new york but more expensive yeah did you feel like it was blade runner-esque at all i kind of felt like at least the area i was staying in it felt very blade runnery yeah yeah i could see that yeah I should have sired. Okay, so then you guys came back, and I know that one thing you had recommended was you ended up launching a token. Yes. And that really, really helped you guys build a treasure. Well, hold, there's there's two different things. There. There's okay. raising with the concept of launching a token, which was a great idea for us. Yeah. And there was launching a token, which 
the way we did it at the time we did it was a terrible idea for us. Okay. Um, at that point in time, a lot of projects had raised a lot of money because they were going to put a token out. Mm-hmm. And we wanted to ride that wave. And so we launched our token and pre-product, pre-everything, frankly. Um, and we just, like, if we were a bunch of, like, Telegram, Twitter, like, shiller dudes who were just, like, all only cared about token go up, then maybe that would have worked. But we were focused on building a product. Mm. And we were just misadvised. And we should have waited. Yeah. Uh, it's something I wish we could take back. But we can't. We're, we're dealing with it in the best way we can right now. But, um, but raising on a token is a great idea. It's a much easier way to raise money than equity. Uh, money comes a lot faster. It's a lot easier to like track and manage because it's on blockchain. You mm-hmm. can just watch your investments pretty closely. But um, launching that token, once it's out of the bag, you can't put it back in mm. um, to a certain degree. Um, but yeah. Have you guys thought about doing like, eh, now that you have a product, a different one, like a governance token or anything or just cruising? I mean, we'd, we'd, we'd probably do another raise on the existing token. But, yeah. You know, right now our token is below the, the price that we initially sold to investors. So we need to get it above that price before we can do another raise. There's all kinds of problems. Yeah. Um, but from a product perspective, we're killing it. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. It's fucking awesome. When you target, so when you think about business development for you guys, you guys are going after DAOs. DAOs. We want to, we are a DAO that wants to provide a, a tool that other DAOs use. Have you, and so are you targeting like any kind of DAO, like the ATX DAO? Is it more like Olympus DAO? Like where do you see yourself? It's DAOs that, understand the importance of risk. There's one DAO called, I don't, I don't want to say their name quite yeah, yet, worries. but they're working on some really innovative debt products. Mm. And when you're issuing debt in a under-collateralized or no-collateralized manner, it's all about counterparty risk. And you can't do counterparty risk in individuals because you can. I, can, I can have an address and then move it to another address. And it's just like, how do you keep track of my identity? You can't. But a DAO usually has all their funds in a multi-sig which is a wallet that you cannot just move money in and out of. It's very more permanent on-chain uh, like ledger of, 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 of balances. And you can run all kinds of stuff against that. You can see what assets they have, what the inflow and outflows are like, where they're deploying their capital, if they're generating any re- revenue based off their product. So you can do counterparty risk on a, on a DAO. And so they want to leverage what we are building from our risk models to do that exact thing to then potentially issue some really innovative loans to these DAOs, which would change the entire landscape of DeFi. It's fucking tight. Were you out, is that what you were doing out in East Denver? Like that is, DAOs? I was trying to figure out what the specific issues and risks people are curious about. And I basically figured out what the, the two big things are. That's awesome. Fuck yeah. Something you want to say or keep it? I mean, it's, it's just, it's, it's uh, understanding the, the, the risks of deploying capital to liquidity pools and an AMM. And then understanding how to effectively and responsibly deploy treasury, mm. which are kind of basically related because the best way to deploy treasury is to LP to like low and permanent loss pools. But even with low and permanent loss pools, you have a handful of risks that are native to DeFi and you got to use someone like Credmark to figure out what those risks are. Mm. 100%. Do you, can you go through impermanent loss for people? I think it's something that people really struggle with as a concept. Yeah. Um, so you could either hold a thousand ETH, or you could take that a thousand ETH and buy and and break it down so you have equal amounts ETH and USDC, right? So if a thousand ETH is worth if a thousand ETH is worth a dollar, 
So then you sell 500 ETH to get 500 USDC. So now I have 500 ETH, 500 USDC. So they're equal amounts of capital. Um, that's one case. The other case, I just have 1,000 ETH. Mm-hmm. And I put that into a liquidity pool in Uniswap, right? Okay. Well, I don't actually own, I don't actually own 500 ETH and 500 USDC. I own a percentage of the entire pool. Mm-hmm. You don't own the assets themselves. You own a percentage of those assets, mm-hmm. an equal amount of them. Well, let's say ETH goes up by a dollar. So it doubles in price. If I just had ETH, I have $2,000. Because I put, I split that ETH into USDC and ETH equal amounts, and I put it in this liquidity pool, um, instead of $2,000, I'm, you know, if I pull out my money at that price, I would have 250 ETH in a little bit more USDC, but I would have less than $2,000 because I willingly put in that ETH into a, a pool and own the percentage of it. Mm-hmm. So I would have made more money just holding on to the Ethereum that I had. Mm-hmm. Now, for, for the example, if while I had my money in that liquidity pool, there was so much volume of the fees I generate from being a liquidity provider were such that it exceeds $2,000 when I pull it out. But then in permanent loss, it didn't matter. I made more money on the trading fees than I lost in Ethereum going up. Yep. Um, that's the best way I can describe it. You, when you put it into a liquidity pool, you own a percentage, and that percentage holds true as the price goes up. Mm-hmm. So you, you only own the same amount. You're never going to realize gains if one of the assets moves up compared to the other. Mm-hmm. Now, a permanent loss can protect you if the price goes down because you don't lose as much money. Yeah. So it can be a good thing sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then it gets you know incredibly more complex as you have Two assets that are highly, highly volatile, highly volatile as well. Yes, but you most assets in crypto, the volatile ones all move together. So it's actually for impermanent loss. I would rather do ETH Bitcoin than ETH USDC. Mm. ETH Bitcoin is going to move like in tandem, whereas USDC USDC is always here. Yeah. It's going to go up and down. Yeah. All right, let's get into fucking MoFest and TSA. So get into the music portion of this. Yeah. What was the genesis moment for MoFest? Uh, during COVID, I had some friends out to my ranch and they were just like, yo, it'd be cool if you threw a festival and called MoFest. I was like, yeah, that, that would that'd be cool. And then a year later, I had started, TSA started up. I started playing shows. I started like realizing that like I have a group of friends, like even just out of my friend group, I could probably get a hundred people out to my ranch camping. And like, I knew enough people with like stage and lighting and bands. Like I could just pull this thing together, kind of, you know, impromptu and do it. And so I did it. Uh, with the help, obviously, of a lot of friends, my friend Alexandra, shout out to her, um, helped me out a lot. And we got sponsors and we did it all like two weeks and it just happened. And it was such a positive response. I th- I was like, I'm not doing this ever again. Like, yeah. Fuck that. <laughs> so successful from like a, a, a experience standpoint. From a money standpoint, I lost a crap ton of money. But that's okay. It was worth it for the response I got from people. Yeah. I I saw a girl at Outer Heaven. She came up to me. She was like, hey, you're, you're Mo for MoFest, right? I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. She's like, yeah. I met my friend here at MoFest and now we're like best friends for life. Yeah. And like, we met because of you. And like that kind of thing, you can't put a dollar value on, right? So I was like, all right, we have enough momentum. There's enough like FOMO for people who missed it, like from you. Yeah. <laughs> Dude, that, that was brutal. I was so bummed. <laughs> uh, so that was like, if we do a second one, we can get more money from sponsors. We can sell it for a higher ticket price and probably get way more people out there. And now we have like, instead of just me and Alexandra and a few other people, it's like we have like 10 people working entirely, like sacrificing their day jobs to do this. And it's like, 
it's incredible to watch like your empower your friend group to leverage their skills to do this thing that they all really want. Like everyone wants to throw a music festival. That's like everyone's dream that yeah. I know at least. Uh, and to see that actually play itself out is is really cool. So now it's just like this thing that like, yeah, it has my name on it, but like it belongs to so many other people now that like, I feel bad that it's called no fest. Yeah. <laughs> if it was such a good name, I would want to rename it to something more inclusive, but yeah, it is a good name though. For sure. <laughs> for sure. Dude, that, that is one thing that I've been really fascinated by when hanging out with Elizabeth originally. It was just like your guys's friend group to me is fucking astounding. Like the, the, the stuff that you do together, the parties that you throw, everybody being like talented in some way. Like one, have it feels like every weekend you guys have a different themed party that somebody in your group is throwing. <laughs> it's like, what the fuck? Is it like constantly Halloween with these guys? Yeah. And then, but it's just like, how did you guys all come together? Because when, like when I hang out with you guys, it does feel a little bit like a Paris in the 20s vibes. Like these, all these like musicians, creative people coming together, like jamming, having fun, fucking around and then building cool shit. I mean, I've only been friends with the people you're talking about since the beginning of 2021. Okay. And I think I've probably injected a lot of the musicianship part of it into mm-hmm. the group to a certain degree. And the reason that we're all friends is because they saw my, they saw TSA play and this girl Vic was like, Hey, will you play at my house for my birthday party on January 9th, 2021, which is when I met my now girlfriend. Um, so that's kind of the genesis point of all this. Okay. Just like uh, this band during COVID and there's no live music. We're not the most talented band in the world, but we came out there. We played weird instruments. We played bluegrass music and we played like crazy covers and like just threw the fuck down. And like since that point on, it's like been a nonstop party. It feels like. Um, And I, I, me personally, I think I fell in love with music again over COVID so much that I wanted to inject it into everything that I do. So like for my birthday, I threw like a jazz party and I, put a jazz band together. We performed at my house, like turned into a jazz club. MoFest. Um, I like insist on TSA playing every big house party that my friends throw because they love it. And I love to play for a bunch of people who are like losing their minds every, every night. Um, and, and I, you know, I'm every time there's a cool concert, I just like tell everyone, everyone, they're like, Hey, there's this concert. And they all know me. They've, they've only known me as this person who knows music really well. So usually they all just go to whatever. I'm like, yo, this concert's gonna be dope. And, 20 of them will show up. Yeah. So I'm just like, I've, because I'm hanging out with people who aren't necessarily inherently musicians. Um, it's like, they trust and like respect my opinion on that thing. And mm-hmm. then whatever their thing is, I trust and respect that they are going to like deliver. So I think there's just an inherent trust that we're not all necessarily this in the same vein of life, but like we're doing pretty well in whatever vein we're in. And I know when they say, Hey, this is going to be cool for this reason. I'm like, yeah, it probably is. And just like when I'm saying this concert's going to be really cool or this show's going to be great, they're like, yeah, we should go. It probably is. Yeah. Dude, so <clears throat> to Alexandra with, with MoFest, one thing that's super fucking funny is I met her in 2020. Uh, we went to this to ABGB. And I swear to this day, she told me that she does A&R for musicians. And I was like, oh, that's cool. So then like over the next year and a half, I thought she did A&R. And it wasn't until literally the Christmas party at your house that I found out she's in tech sales. Yeah. This entire time. And then now she's like, I'm kind of doing A&R for MoFest. So like it's like now become a reality. 
which is pretty fucking hilarious. Well, so to, to she was doing it for so far sounds and for a couple independent artists before okay. COVID happened. Okay, and we had this conversation today. She said COVID kind of like knocked her out of the game for a second, and then yeah. through what we've been doing with MoFest and Mo and Co, uh, she's been like her passion for that's been revived, and she's, I mean, she's killing it. It's ridiculous. That's fucking awesome. Okay. So there is a little bit. I'm not just fucking crazy. No, and like no, my yeah. misremembering. That's hilarious. That's awesome. Yeah. She's, she's an epic human. What do you think brought the TSA together? So like why a bunch of, why Texas string assembly? Uh, so in COVID, nothing was happening. My two friends, Will Coleman and Connor, both are from like Alabama and, and Georgia respectively. And they both like bluegrass music and they knew I had an upright, which I hadn't played in forever. What's an upright? Upright bass. Okay. Which is like another bluegrass, you know, uh, crucial instrument. Um, and they're like, yeah, just come bring it out and jam. And I brought it and I was terrible. My hands hurt. And, but like there was nothing else to do. So we would spend, we were, and we were actually jamming in what would become outer heaven. Cause Connor was a, a contractor at outer heaven building it out. And so we were there when it was, a bunch of const- like wood and construction and like loose wires and shit and we just play for hours there's nothing else to do there's really nothing else to do we play from like 7 p.m to midnight every day for months in during covid um and then one day someone was like hey we're putting together an event on our front porch we all play we're like yeah all right sure and so we it was just me mandolin banjo this guy who played piano and then i invited my neighbor who i'd never heard play but i knew he played fiddle like hey will you come to this thing he was like yeah sure turns out he's a world-class fiddle player who plays for the josh abbott band who has like oh millions and millions and millions of plays on spot this guy is like a professional we're a bunch of idiots we have no drummer our timing is terrible but somehow like i told maybe five people but because it was in the, the biggest lull of like anything ever in the history of our lifetimes yeah each of those five people told five people and they told five people. And so what I thought would be 10 people on this front lawn turned out to be like 80 people all packed onto a corner in this random neighborhood in Hyde Park. People are coming out of their homes. Cars are stopping. This is the first time I've ever sang in front of people live before. Ever. <laughs> this is the first time anyone in the band has ever played a show. Yeah. And thank God we had this fiddle player just burning shit to the <laughs> ground because we were not ready to perform for that many people. Yeah. And one of the people in the crowd was my roommate. Well, not my roommate yet. He was just a friend of mine, Stein, who all his bands had KO'd because of COVID. was like, yo, that was interesting, but y'all's timing is terrible. You need a drummer. I was like, well, you want the job? He was like, yeah, sure. Then he joined. And once he joined, it was like, okay, this thing is actually good now. What this is interesting, and we played a show at a parking lot, which is when Vic and Alexandra saw us play, and that's how we got that house party that we met this whole friend group at. Yeah. And was this like, house party a crawfish boil by chance? No, that okay, was later. Okay. In the, that was okay, March. Okay, okay. This was January. Got it. Got it. Preceded the crawfish boil. Yeah. Um, and so once that happened, it just took off because. The way we play blue, uh, you've been to a show, right? Mm-hmm. No, yeah. not a TSA show. Oh, well, you should. Guys, it's yeah. it's interesting. Mm-hmm. It's, it's unlike any band I've ever been in. It's the most fun I've ever had. It's the fastest. We like we're out to put out a full length album in like a year, basically, of being a band, which is ridiculous. Um, and we got a lot of big things coming up. So, um, yeah, I don't know. That would just kind of happen. It happened organically. To, like we're a bunch of friends. We just hang out, and it's like totally unlike any other band that I know of in Austin. It's like what you think about, like when non-musicians think about a band, it's what it's, it is what you think about a bunch of friends 
hanging out, scheming. Whereas most bands, it's like one guy who writes the songs and he hires a bunch of guys and they just they meet up once a week and they like go through the motions. This is not that. This is like raw passion, chaos, creativity out the ass. It's it's awesome. That's fucking sick. And you would say the closest genre would be bluegrass. Um, and it's it's rock music, but the instruments instead of being electric, they're all acoustic. And are you like, are you singing still? Or oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I would say we split the songs pretty evenly between myself, mandolin player Wilco, um, and uh, our guitar player Jimmy. Okay. Uh, Stein was telling me a little bit about your Genesis story in line at a bar at a like for a show. Do you want to go into that? Yeah, I met Stein. <laughs> we were in line at a Mac DeMarco show at Waterloo Records in twenty fifteen, maybe. And I was trying to hit on these two girls behind me and they were not having it. And they just yeah. shut me down. And he like laughed at me. Like, Fuck's your deal. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, and we talked and he turns out he was a video guy and I was going to shoot a live video at a ranch like the next day. And I was like, you want to come? He was just like, all right. So the first time we ever hung out was like out on a random ranch with this with Sweet Spirit, this really dope Austin band, like filming complete chaos. And he was just like, yeah, this is, I dig this. <laughs> He's a really cool dude. One of the most funny, he told me he was from Missouri and he was just, I was like, oh, like the only thing I know about Missouri is never shout never. And he was like, bro, I went to the same high school as Christopher Drew. And like (laughs) we, our band opened for him. I was like, what? That is like the most like randomly not famous, famous person to be connected to. Yeah, It's fantastic. Yeah. Uh, Dope, man. Well, hey, let's kind of get this going. Do you have any place you'd like to send people, let people know about things you want to talk through at the end here? Um, so if it's crypto related, the best place is the Credmark Discord. Just Google credmark.com and find the Discord link and hop right in. We're always talking about really intense risk modeling and data stuff. Um, if you want to follow t- Texas String Assembly, it's just texas.string. Or it might be underscores. Texas String Assembly on Instagram. Best place. Really fun stuff. Uh, but I think MoFest is the most impending thing. So Mo.Fest on Instagram. Um, you could buy tickets. Lineup's out. We're, we're, we're getting a whole hype train going on it. Um, and I'm really excited about and it. what are the dates again? April 22nd and 23rd. Dope, man. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Appreciate Thank you, man. Time. Appreciate it. Fuck yeah. Seize the day. Oh, and where can people find you on Instagram and shit and Twitter? And- oh, I'm uh, MoStars93 on Twitter. Fuck yeah. That's with a Z. MoStars93. And then same thing on Instagram. Dope, brother. Awesome. Seize the day. Peace.